Okay, good evening everyone. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And it's really my great pleasure to welcome our speaker tonight, Paul Mason. Paul, as many of you will know, um, has multiple hats. He, he's a broadcaster, he's a writer and he's also an activist. Uh, Paul studied both politics and music, I think that's right, um, at Sheffield University, um, a place that's um, well known for the study of politics. And later he worked as a music teacher and also as a lecturer at Loughborough University. As a journalist, um, he's occupied some of the most important perches in news and current affairs uh, in this country. He was the business and then the economics editor of the BBC's flagship Newsnight program, and then later on he was the economics editor of Channel 4 News. And after that he did a number of standalone programs, some of which you might have heard and a number of which have won various awards. Well, over the last 12 years uh, he's also written a number of books. I, I didn't count them all, I think there's at least half a dozen but I, I, I myself have noticed four in particular, Live Working and Die Fighting, which he published in 2007, Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere in the Wake of the Revolutionary Upsurge um, in 2011, Post-Capitalism a few years ago, and right now, Clear, Bright Future, the book which he's going to be discussing with us tonight. I should mention also that the book is available outside and, and after um, our event today, um, Paul will be there if you want to get a signed copy, but please, he will he'll go outside um, for that purpose. Well, as I say, it's the thesis of that book which we're going to be discussing tonight and uh, Paul's going to be speaking for about, I think, 45 minutes or so and then we're going to have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. But before we start, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Paul Mason. Thank you for that, and um, it's always a delight to be here at the LSE, and in particular at the Ralph Miliband uh, Lecture Series. Um, by the end of this event, I want you to know the answer to a question, or at least by the end of your engagement with the question itself, which might take you longer than 45 minutes. The question is, do I want to resist the machine control of human beings or not? And the supplementary question is, if I want to do so, on what basis? On what basis do I resist machine control? Because the onset of artificial intelligence will be, whenever it comes, whenever we achieve, and whatever we achieve by way of general, intel general artificial intelligence or something close to it, will be a watershed in human history. At some point in this century, I am pretty confident that an intelligent machine will ask us, a human being, on what basis do you, the puny human, demand the right to control me, the machine? After all, I can outthink you, I can outplay you at the most complicated human games. Um, as a robot, I can outrun you, I can outperform you, I can meet and surpass any productivity or quality standard you ask me to do, and what is more, I have rigged every election since 2016. <laughs> so who are you? We'll discuss 
some of the answers traditionally given um, to that. But the problem is not a question for sci-fi anymore, nor is it a question for futurology or blue skies thinking or for an ethics conference uh, or for an ethics team in your university or your company or indeed your church. It's a problem posed as much by what we are doing as by what the technology is doing. By our own loss of agency, our own fatalism, and the rise among us, including in academia, of anti-humanist theories, and of course in politics. It's as much caused by these things as the, the challenge of the technology itself. And I've written the book to try and link the problems created, that will be created by the technology, with the problems of now. Because right now, in case you hadn't noticed, we are in pretty big trouble. Bigger trouble than is obvious to you if you only spend your time in beautiful campuses uh, like this. We've got an economic model that no longer works for most people. We have consent for democracy, the rule of law, and universal human rights evaporating before our eyes. And alongside that, not in the future, not in sci-fi, not in Terminator 2, 3 and 4, but now we have states and major corporations trying to impose algorithmic control using asymmetries of power based on technological power that are, I would argue, pretty unknown, certainly in the last two to four hundred years. You want the evidence? Just listen to the headlines. That the economy and the economic model is not functioning, I could provide you with a headline an hour, to be honest. But the one that struck me recently was 4.1 million children in this country live in poverty. Daily Mirror, 8th of April. Did Zeit, the day, next, the day after, 9th of April. Did Zeit, Germany. Hungary is lost. Quotes, the institutions, the legal system, and the social fabric, quotes, are nothing but a pile of rubble. Guardian, the 11th of April, China's high-tech war on its Muslim minority. Quotes, the police administered what they call a health check, which involved collecting several types of biometric data, including DNA, blood type, fingerprints, voice recordings, and face scans, a process that all adults are expected to undergo. As I reported this crisis over the last 12 years, watching it morph from an economic crisis to, a, to social unrest, to a crisis of legitimacy, not just for the rule of law and human rights, but for rationalism and scientific thought, I came to the conclusion that there is something deeper going on, something that links the economic, the political, and the technological power struggles that we are living through. And for me, it is this. The crisis of neoliberalism has morphed into a crisis of the neoliberal self. The selves we built in the last 30 years under free market economics turn out to be very good at choosing between Nike and Adidas or cappuccino and latte, but very bad at differentiating truth from lies. Why? So before I launch into this, I just want to preface it by saying 
for me as a journalist, and most British journalists idolise George Orwell, the point about spending a lot of time analysing a situation and trying to understand its dynamics is not to avoid action. It is, Orwell says this in the diary entry, in, during the Dunkirk crisis. Stephen Spender says to him, the, the poet, Orwell, why do me and you know what's going to... What, what, why can me and you keep predicting what's about to happen when no member of the cabinet seems to be able to? A predicament that many of you will also recognise uh, today. And, and Orwell says, it's not about having a crystal ball, it's simply about understanding what kind of world you are living in. A world where one day, you know... Russia is encouraging an anti-fascist popular front, and the next day it signs a pact with Hitler. It's that kind of world. Now, the purpose of the book is to try and do the heavy lifting for left progressive people in this country about and the world. What kind of world are we living in? To try and to, to begin this, I, I just want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Suppose I told you that there was a machine that could run the country uh, better than the government. <laughs> it can think more logically than any single human being. Uh, it can correct its mistakes better if humans don't try to intervene into the process. In fact, tinkering with this machine is fatal. It's much better if you don't try and correct it. And suppose I said, you know, all the important decisions in your life, who you love, who you date, what you eat, should be taken by the machine. Uh, suppose I also said you would be a lot happier in your life if you start to anticipate what the machine wants. Try and guess what it's going to do. I hope you will tell me, and the polite version of it is to get lost. Yeah? But now just try and substitute the word market for the word machine. For the past three decades, millions of people allowed market forces to run their lives, shape their behavior, and overrule the democratic decisions of their governments. And we think it's normal. There's even a religion dedicated to worshipping this machine. And it is worshipped here. Economics. Um, and there are several sectarian splits within it, as there are in all religions. So what happened as a result of 30 years of market worship? I argue in the book that we became very performative. So for two generations, what managers have been doing... And what politicians have been doing is to say, how many black people do we employ? How many women are on the board? How many uh, lesbian and gay civil partnerships and marriages have been celebrated in the, work, in the company bulletin? Tick, 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 tick. There was never a tick box that said, and I believe in all this. Because in a performance-based system, there doesn't have to be. The system advocated and designed by Gary Becker and the other neoliberals in the 1980s only relies on the outcome. It, and in fact, um, there was no requirement to believe any of it, and we now find that a lot of people have quietly not believed any of it. Because the free market system was never about beliefs, only outcomes that could be measured by quasi-market metrics. Performance, in the business terms, is what you achieve. But in the process, I argue, performance, in the, almost, in the Judith Butler term, is the thing you do while you are achieving. And you only have to believe, to demonstrate belief that the machine is right. Because often it is. Markets are a great way of clearing 
uh, supply and demand, and they are a great way of finding equilibrium uh, in, in certain circumstances. And if there were large areas of human life where market behaviour did not exist, the very definition of neoliberalism for me, borrowed from William Davis of Goldsmiths University, is that neoliberalism was the coercive imposition of market norms of behaviour into everyday life. Um, it's a system with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end bit is where the coercive imposition of market behaviours starts not to work. Foucault, writing at the dawn, in the beginning of this system, told us what we would become under neoliberalism, eminently governable. But that's not all. In the book I try to describe how through the big demonstrative actions, which Foucault of course didn't live to see all of them, ranging from Thatcher's pro-cyclical slump economics, which me and my family lived through in the early 1980s, right through to the bailout of long-term capital management in the late 90s, right through to Lehman Brothers. Governments always try to teach us to believe in the machine. And what they achieved in the process was almost a mass conversion to a new folk religion of fatalism. You'll hear it from young people, especially young people struggling to get an education. I hear it every time I interface with, with people, who, powerless people. I have no way out of this predicament. Seven pounds an hour, eight pounds an hour. I can't, I, I'm going to be a bus driver, I'm going to be a cleaner or a barista in a coffee shop. And the only way out of it is if I win the X Factor or become a Premiership football player. You can hear those attitudes in any sixth form if you, you want to go into in this city. <clears throat> but, on the other hand, amid all the crises, and every headline is a crisis, every Daily Mail front page, every, every Times front page, is something terrible has happened, but amid it all, nothing bad ever happens to me. And these two parts of the folk religion of fatalism, I argue, are equally important. The idea that there's no escape, and the idea that despite there being no escape, nothing bad really ever happens to me. Now, that's fine. These, these norms of behaviour, these ideas, this ideology, this, 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 this adaptation of the self to the neoliberal reality is fine as long as it works. But in 2008, it stopped working. It malfunctioned so badly that it nearly destroyed the global financial system. Thanks to $16 trillion worth of central bank money and an extra $57 trillion worth of debt. I mean, who remembers Richard Koo of Nomura uh, on, the, on the morrow of the Lehman Brothers crisis saying, it'll take us 10 years to pay down the debt. No, no, we added $57 trillion to the debt pile. And by doing so, we kept neoliberalism on life support. House prices bounced back. Yacht prices rose. Smartphones got bigger. Coffee shops proliferated, and people with master's degrees got to work in them. Uh, fiat money and a compliant central bank can keep any system on life support, any economic model you want. Uh, with true fiat money and, and a compliant central bank, I think Keynesianism could have been kept alive way after its, its sell-by date. Uh, and I am somebody who lived through it and saw its problems. But you can keep an economy on life support forever. This was the message of Mark Carney to the 2016 Shanghai uh, uh, 
G20 finance ministers. We, if things go wrong, we will carry on. We will, we will helicopter drop 10 grand into everybody's account if we have to. The problem is you can't keep an ideology on life support forever. The human brain demands coherence. And what it wants to know is when's it going to get better for me and my children? How does my child have a richer life than I did? Where is the high, when is the high street of my town going to stop looking like a zombie movie was just staged there? Um, people in power could give no answer. They bought more or less the whole uh, prospectus of Fukuyama's end of history thesis. Um, and it translated for a while into a very compelling message. It's going to be like this forever, only better. But after 2008, the message became, it's going to be like this forever, only worse. And what happens when a religion fails, when it literally stops explaining the world? We see that those of you who maybe study anthropology and comparative religion will know better than I do that there are amazing stories of religions that were ubiquitous and then suddenly fall apart. What happens is, in general, one of two things. Either there is already a new religion that's challenging, and says, no, this old bullshit is bullshit. Um, out here is the new explanation of the world. Or, if there's not, people look to the old religions, the religions that preceded. And I'm afraid the very simple explanation I have for you about what is happening in the entire developed world is that the religion of neoliberalism failed, and people say, well, what's left? What's coherent? Where's the utopias? And the utopias that are on offer are... Racism, xenophobia, misogyny, and the worship of powerful thieves. Trump, Bolsonaro, Netanyahu, Orban, Duterte. Just like the fascist dictators of the 1930s, each of these people recognizes their self-interest in the rise of other authoritarian nationalists. Even though their weapon is nationalism and ethnocentrism, and even though their aim is to break up the global system. Of course, these are not fascists. This is not fascism yet that we are dealing with. And I argue that the, the elites, we don't, it doesn't need to be, because the elites of the 1920s and 30s in Europe turned to fascism because they had to smash an organized working class. Um, you can't make automobiles with 25,000 enemies, said Giovanni Agnelli, the boss of Fiat, in 1919, when indeed 25,000 enemies had taken over the factories in Turin and Milan. Um, the solution two years later was to uh, disperse those enemies through the use of fascist squads. That's what Italian fascism was, an attack on the working class. You don't need that if um, they've been predispersed for you by 30 years of market economics, outsourcing, offshoring, anti-union consultancies and anti-union laws, and if necessary, riot police. Um, the working class comes predispersed and pre-atomized. So we don't need fascism. And of course, because this is the, the Ralph, Miliband, Ralph Miliband lecture, I should not need to remind you, you don't need... Desturma. You don't need the Volkischer Beobachter, uh, the party newspaper of the far right, uh, to destroy progressives when you've got perfectly democratic and mainstream newspapers prepared to run headlines like The Man Who Hated Britain. 
which is what the, 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 the Daily Mail called Miliband himself. But a section of the elite in every country now has, I think, responded to this crisis, the, the global crisis of neoliberalism, with a kind of nationalist neoliberalism that I want to call Thatcherism in one country. In the book, I try to analyse the social roots of the Trump project. The chapter is called The General Theory of Trump. Um, and, um, and I worked on it with some students, uh, some politics students at Sydney University two years ago. We had a good seminar where we kicked around not long after Trump came to power. The, the, the idea of a fractions of capital analysis about Trump and the other, and other uh, people. This place used to be one of the places where you could study fractions of capital. And, and it, the idea was, in the old Keynesian era, there was industrial and finance capital, and they had different uh, material interests. For me, this works slightly differently. <clears throat> I want to ask not only why the, the, the mass uh, plebeian... Uh, right-wing movements have come into being, but why a section of the elite needs them if they don't need to smash the workers as Mussolini and, and Franco and Hitler needed to do? Um, why would a section of the US business elite, which has always benefited from globalization and free trade, suddenly decide to pull the plug on the multilateral system. Well, the short answer is that the multilateral system imposes obligations that, in conditions of secular stagnation and popular discontent, can't be met without making inroads into the wealth of the elite. So, for, for me, a section of the elite has emerged that, not content with the cooperative deregulation that has been obligatory for the last 30 years under the WTO, EU, NAFTA, now wants to pursue deregulation as a competitive strategy. So I can dump the results of my, my better deregulation onto you in the form of trade war pulling out of multilateral systems. Um, it wants to escape all obligations with regard to tax, because the demo, this is the other thing, the demographic ageing problem creates greater and greater demands on on governments funded by taxation, and if possible, it wants to, uh, to escape the obligations of climate change. Uh, this is why almost all rich people, uh, Bezos being the latest one, uh, Elon Musk another one, uh, Peter Thiel of PayPal, almost all of them obsess about getting off the planet. Um, <laughs> And if possible, they want to escape the rule of law. And the way to do this is to escape from multilateral obligations. So if you look at the very different capitalist backers of Trump, Bannon, ex-Goldman guy, runs his own Breitbart uh, uh, news outlet, Robert Mercer of Renaissance Technologies, uh, Peter Thiel of PayPal, or by proxy, the Koch brothers who funded the, the Republicans but not Trump in the last election. Their common material interest is chaos. They can trade chaos. They can trade volatility if they've got an IT system like Rentec has. Or um, it's, chaos is good for Bright, Breitbart. The more rapes there are in Sweden, the more money Bright, Breitbart can make by um, slandering the Swedish refugee and migrant community. Um, and in Trump, what they found is a chaos engine. Treaties signed at a conference table repudiated by tweet in midair. The, the pullout of the Paris Climate Accord, the military pullout of Syria, unilateral and unknown to half his legislators, half, sorry, half his officials. 
The unilateral threat to co collapse NATO, <coughs> the destruction of the Iran nuclear deal, and so on, and so on, and so on. It will carry on. Sure, the Russians um, helped Trump. Sure, Hillary Clinton ran a dire campaign. And until the arrival of uh, Congress people like Cortez, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Alan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, the Democrats looked a bit weak. But what created Trump was a section of the US elite prepared to relinquish its unchallenged superpower status in a multilateral system and opt to play instead a unilateral system of great power politics, which just so happens to be what, is, what its main interlocutor, Vladimir Putin, also wants. So what Trump did was to detach from the norms of constitutional democracy and embraced a strategy first outlined by Hannah Arendt in on totalitarianism, which has become my kind of alt-Bible for writing this book. As you may know, I'm very critical of her, but I think it's incredibly relevant for reasons I wouldn't have recognized 10 or 20 years ago. Arendt calls it the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. Trump is not the end of the story, unfortunately. Neither is Salvini in Italy, neither is Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban in Russia, Putin. It, Put, Orban in, in Hungary, Putin in Russia. They're not the end. Nor is Brexit the worst thing that's going to happen in this crisis in this country, uh, I fear. Because in attacking and indeed sometimes destroying uh, forms of centre-right conservatism that are committed to the multilateral order, this new breed of authoritarian nationalist uh, politician has done something really bad. It's destroyed conservatism's defences against ethno-nationalism and fascist ideology. In your lifetime, on your timeline, sharing, it is, share, is creating a shared mind space between the two things academics have always spent years trying to categorise as separate. You know, if you study the far right, you ask, is it the economic discontent or is it the cultural dislocation that's driving working class people towards it? Um, uh, I think most of that research is, as Kasmuda says, it's, un it's annoyingly out of date. Because the third thing is having fascist enablers in power. If you have a president who's prepared to use the language, share the thought architecture, use the memetics, this, the symbol, yeah, uh, of fascists, and when they kill somebody, says there's wrong people on both sides. Um, that's almost like a third and more powerful enabler than the sociological and economic enablers that we as academics, or you as academics, are used to studying. Academics used to... So, I'm sorry. I've skipped ahead. And <clears throat> this new alliance of elite and mob have discovered a very significant weapon, and it's the attack on truth. See, I've tried to write a kind of recent history in the book, um, both in the book and in some theatre work I did with actors at the Young Vic two years ago. We tried to work on the recent history of how, how elites have, have reacted to the power of mass discontent. The first thing is censorship. So, you, you know, Mubarak, Mubarak shuts down Facebook, Erdogan shuts down Facebook even easier two years later. But, you know, that, that's, censorship is crude. Phase two was the creation of separate bubbles of reality, both on social media and in real media and in real life. If you meet and interact with supporters of, of uh, President Trump, as I did on the inauguration day, um, you find people who very often want have, a, have a, an almost militarily planned line of retreat from rationality every time rationality suggests they are wrong. 
So what about climate change? Ah, oh, but there are camels in the there are camels buried in the Antarctic. You know, you, I don't think there are. Um, what goes around climate change is just the, the, the Earth breathing. It's it's just that this functions very importantly. The, the, the irrationality functions as bubble creation. You never escape the bubble. But you know, another example. To you, the words animal rights mean what? Probably we don't like uh, puppy farming by criminals. To the far right, animal rights immediately, and without mentioning the words, connote two other words, halal and kosher. That's what they... If you go on a right-wing website, you don't have to even use the words halal, kosher. You just use the words animal rights, and it is a signifier for everything else. That's what bubbles do. But bubbles only get you so far. So point three, the third part of the strategy, it pioneered in Russia, copied everywhere, is to flood the conversation with so much bullshit and hatred that people don't want to take part. Vladimir Putin's troll farms were doing this long before social media. They were doing it on live journal. They were doing it on the plain old bulletin boards. That was their job. Every time somebody pops up, and say something critical, storm them, make their lives a misery, and also make it very difficult for anybody to take part in the conversation. I know with my 600,000 Twitter followers, I've been very careful that I'm not retweeting some complete rubbish. I mean, in other words, I have to audit everything I retweet or even interact with at a level that I don't have the physical bandwidth to do. That's great for them. That's what they've done. Arendt, of course, wrote that the ideal subject for a fascist state is somebody who's lost the ability to uh, distinguish between fact and fiction and between true and false. People suffering from levels of isolation and dislocation so great that they don't trust their own experience, nor the opinions of experts, nor normal standards of logic. This description of fascism is great for us, but it's scary. Why? It should be even more scary. Weimar had mass unemployment. It's experienced the defeat and humiliation of the First World War, um, and a failed communist insurrection in which, as you know, if you watch the movies, if you watch Babylon Berlin, you know, it scarred Germany for a generation. America, the America that embraced Trump, had experienced nine uninterrupted years of growth. Germany had experienced 14 years of democracy before Hitler. America, 240. Uh, of constitutional republic. And Arendt, of course, believed, and I, I explore this in the book, Arendt believed that America was uniquely uh, immune to the fascist logic for this reason. Not anymore. And of course, Hitler and Stalin could rely on populations heavily militarized and hierarchized by the workplace, the Weberian pyramid, um, and they had absolute power over the dissemination of information. We have Wikipedia, we have flat hierarchies, we have uh, Me Too, we have Black Lives Matter, but um, it's even scarier for that reason. So what's going on? <clears throat> in an essay uh, called On the German Problem, uh, written in 1945, around the time of the Potsdam Conference, Arendt um, gives us a clue, or gave me a clue, gave me a line of inquiry. There was a lot of um, angst around the time of Potsdam about were Germans, uh, you know, sort of ethnically, were, were they, was fascism in their DNA? Is the German character <clears throat> uniquely prone to fascism? And she says this, the real trouble lies not in the German national character, but rather in the disintegration of this character. 
Now, I think that is a clue to what's happening now. She says, what's replaced the German character is a type of human being, quotes, who, sensing destruction, tries to turn himself into a destroying force. And they're now everywhere, she says. And I think they are now, not everywhere, but in a lot of places now. What we're living through is the disintegration of the neoliberal character. Sensing destruction, you could say, large numbers of people, mainly on the right, but some also on the left, are in danger of turning themselves into a, what Aaron called, destroying force. Two generations of people learn to think and act as if they really were the metaphorical homo economicus. I watched this way of thinking and acting imposed in my own town, Lee in Lancashire, one of the oldest industrial societies in the world. All the people who've been despised, the criminals, the crooks, the dodgy market store dealers, the Dell boys, the strike breakers, the gamblers, the gambling addicts, the petty criminals, they became the new heroes. And our dads, who'd held society together, the respectable white male hierarchical paternalist working man, they were the enemy within. You remember? I mean, that was how classically the whole thing turned. I saw it happen on a global scale in black communities in America as a journalist, uh, in the gangster culture of the favelas of Latin America and, and, and Africa, in Moscow in the early years of the Yeltsin government. Um, I lived there for a month under the 2,000% inflation. And the, the psychological experience of, of adapting to life under neoliberalism, I think, did create a new kind of self. There are many novels and artistic expressions of this. Victor Pelevin, in his novel Babylon, um, uh, describes what it meant for those who experienced the end of the USSR. Eternity had disappeared. USSR was eternity, he says, but it was replaced by an endless present in which there was no future. Well, mil millions of people tuned their reflexes to, to survive in that endless present, looking after number one, cultivating your own human capital, becoming what Foucault, becoming what Foucault described as entrepreneurs of the self. But now, what, what I saw happen to the Soviet Union looks a lot like what happened to neoliberalism in the last 10 years. It, beca it became a performative ritual at odds with people's underlying experience and belief. Everything was forever, and then it was no more, is the title of a brilliant book about the last years of the Soviet Union. And it's, it would serve as a great epitaph for, for me for the, for the last 10 years of neoliberalism. Eternity has disappeared, yes. The endless present is over, so what's left? There's only either the past or the future. And we on the left have completely failed to offer and define the future. Unless the left projects its own utopias, its own value set, its own vision of the future, it will be the right's vision of all these things that wins. Now for me, what has to be at the centre of any progressive vision of the future has to be both for the reasons of technology which I began with and for the reasons of the crisis of the neoliberal self, which I have explored, has to be a theory of human beings. And if you study humanities uh, in any university, you will know that this is not a fashionable view. Uh, as we will see, the 21st century left, whether postmodernist, environmentalist, social democratic, or even orthodox Marxist, finds it very embarrassing to talk about human nature. Now, In the book, I argue what we need is a biologically defensible theory of human nature. For me, it goes like this. We evolved, quite accidentally, 
um, there was no divine intervention or design, we evolved into a species whose DNA makes us into imagineers, technologists, team workers, and linguists. As a result, it is logical to believe, not that we have a destiny, but that we have an outcome. That at least a 50% chance of technology and cultural progress, trans- self-transformation, and economic development being used by us to break free of economic necessity, coercion, hierarchy, and ignorance. If you want to call that view of human beings teleological, feel free. It is overtly teleological. Uh, because for me, it is grounded in the insights of Marx in the 1844 manuscripts, the so-called Paris manuscripts. The more we know about evolutionary biology and anthropology, Marx's assertion that we are species beings, not only the Zoon Politicon, but that, not only Benjamin Franklin's Homo Faber, but that, we are species being, that is, the our self-realization is always in the content of the context of the entire species. This seems to me to fit with everything I have read and studied about evolutionary biology and, 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 and how we got to be the species that we are. With hindsight, this humanist Marxism, the Marxism of the early Marx, conceived, yes, before Marx fully embraced his theory of the proletariat as the blind watchmaker of history, has so much in common with religion that, um, and I say this as a Marxist, um, Marx, we should have no embarrassment about identifying Marx as the last great enlightenment, last great uh, philosopher of the Judeo-Christian enlightenment. It is that Marx and that concept, that concept of human nature that I've tried to defend in the book. But if you've been anywhere near a humanities school in the last 30 years, you'll know that I am defending against some quite powerful people. The slave ideology of neoliberalism, postmodernism, overtly anti-humanist in in its design. The progenitor of postmodernism, structuralist Marxism, also occasionally strong in these parts um, in the 1970s. Um, Althusser famously said, history is a process without a subject. Um, Or if you want another word for a process without a subject, it's a machine. Um, and the offspring of postmodernism, posthumanism, and so-called object-oriented ontology, the new materialisms. Now, the claim of the postmodernists was that the concept of human was socially constructed and could disappear once the conditions of the Enlightenment also disappeared. Neoliberalism created the conditions to destroy the Enlightenment thinking, so goodbye man, goodbye human nature, uh, in comes the sea, as Foucault says it, in that amazing metaphor, and washes away hum- the concept of human like the sea across the beach. Uh, post-humanism goes further. As the post-humanist writer Rosie Braidotti admits in her book The Post-Human, post-modernism became self-defeating. It was an anti-theory and produced not very much, really, outside of critical theory, um, in, in the way of operational knowledge. And if you want to run a humanities department these days, you really do have to be thinking about what operational knowledge you're going to uh, tell the dean or the, the vice-chancellor you have actually produced. And, and Briodotti describes by the 1990s the postmodernist scene as, quotes, a, and she is a postmodernist, quotes, a zombified landscape of repetition without difference and a lingering melancholia. Well, who wants that? Um, and who wants to live in a closed-down humanities department where nobody cares about you? Uh, 
to keep the whole anti-science, anti-rationalist, anti-humanist thing on the road, there needed to be a new ism, and post-humanism, if you haven't noticed, is it. Um, the problem with post-humanism is, for me, not the assertion that we might create post-human intelligences or androids. Um, we most certainly will. Um, transhumanism, which you may have heard of, is a different thing. The problem I have with it is its implicit elitism. I would love to have a bionic arm, but I would also love everybody else to have the right to that bionic arm or altered gene pool. It's a different set of problems. Post-humanism is about something else. Post-humanism, to me, properly so-called in academia, critical post-humanism, is the, is the idea that we are already post-human because of the scale of our subjection to algorithmic control and because of the two-dimensionality of the selves created by the process I've described under neoliberalism. Uh, the Oxford Professor of Information Technology, sorry, Information Philosophy, Luciano Floridi, whose work I do admire but criticise, goes halfway towards this. He says, well, we're not post-human, but we are already information organisms, inforgs, he calls it, uh, because we are pl always playing away it's a great metaphor. We're playing away on the away ground of humanity, which is the home ground of technology. Now, for me, the problem of how do we lawfully control artificial intelligences has to be rooted in the question, how do we defend the concept of human, universal human rights and a multilateral global system against those who would destroy both? How do we control the vast coercive and surveillance states already enabled by intelligent machines long before AI becomes general and robots autonomous. The idea of what we do about humans and machines is for me the same problematic as what we do about free human beings and states that oppress them using technology today. Because after all, Hobbes, you know, for, for Hobbes, the Leviathan was a machine. States are in a way autonomous mechanisms created by human beings. What does he call them? The state, says Hobbes, is but an artificial man. The immense service done for us by the sci-fi writers who imagined AI, androids, algorithmic control, from Zamyatin to Orwell to Asimov and beyond, was they always posed the question of where agency, where self-control and where freedom will reside in a world of total determination by, by, te by technological forces. And we have to answer them for our generation. And here's where, in a way, the, the discourse of my book turns in a way that I didn't expect it to turn when I started it. Because it has turned in the direction of moral philosophy. Which is a weird space for any Marxist to be in. In 2003, before the Google IPO, I interviewed Larry Page and Sergey Brin, then the, the, the guys who, who owned Google. I asked them, what's still left for you to do? And Page said, well, I want to, believe, I want to build a machine that knows everything. And he did. Uh, or it knows everything we know and more. It knows what you're going to do before you do it. It knows you are gay before you know you are gay. It knows you are pregnant before you know you are pregnant. Facebook, likewise. Cambridge Analytica, which held 5,000 data points on millions of American voters, could predict, predict their political choices better than they could. And that's, that's 101. This is crude technology. 
In the face of AI, algorithms, and monopolization of personal data and intrusive surveillance, we're continually faced with new calls for their ethical use. But Google just found out that's not so easy because Google just had to sack its entire ethics board for the AI, AI chunk of Google because the staff rebelled, Google staff, against the appointment of a right-wing conservative philosopher to that board. Kind of, if the st- staff can rebel against the ethics board, it's not really an ethics board, I think, is what they just learned. But what they stumbled onto is the key problem. Finding an ethics for closed tasks, those of you who study, say, method, medical ethics, maybe here, uh, is a challenging but usually a so- solvable problem. And you can always go back to the, new, to the two main ethical default systems of capitalism. Utilitarianism, make the most people happy with the fewest downsides. Or uh, the, the whole kind of post-Kant rule sets, the deontological ethics, which most people encounter via roles and social justice theory. Uh, now in the book, I argue, and I'm going to sort of shorten this a bit, but it's there. I argue following the logic outlined by Alistair McIntyre in After Virtue, that neither of these ethical systems is good enough to cope with the challenge of AI. Under utilitarianism, you can ask an AI to make everybody happy. It squirts an opoid spray up 7 billion people's noses. Um, under social justice ethics, you, know, you can make the fewest people poor. I always think that a, a computer programmed for, with, with Rawlsian social justice theory would simply reproduce Clinton's America. Um, as McIntyre, who was an excellent Marxist before he became an Aristotelian Christian, uh, as with him, I argue that the real ethical choice in the age of AI, given the scale, is between the two more, 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 po- more polarized ethical schools. Uh, the, there is, it's, a, it's a choice between virtue ethics and Nietzsche. Uh, it's a, a choice between eudaimonic thinking, what is good for society, what is the good society, what is the good human being in it, or fuck you, um, you know, as, as, as my two-word summary of Nietzsche. Um, though, though, th- those, those are the consistent choices. Of course, if you program an AI with a Nietzschean ethical system, the danger is obvious. It quickly concludes that it is the Superman and that you are the untermensch. It's quite hard to com- convince the AI, which can defeat any Go player in the world, that it is not the Superman. Um, and if you understand Nietzsche properly, uh, I do, uh, in the sense of call, call Nietzsche, just as jo- George Luk- Lukács call him, and as McIntyre himself writes, Nietzsche is the all-purpose reactionary philosopher. Every so, it's, it's logical to believe that every so often he comes back as a, as a justification for reaction. I believe the interesting thing is that Nietzscheanism is what unites Silicon Valley with the new right. It's their fundamental belief in that that, is their, that we need something to challenge with. Now, to draw towards a close, problematic though they are, virtue ethics, for me, are where we need to begin the question of how do we construct rounded ethical systems for the future technology, where we, how we begin to construct laws and even the safety standards for AI. I don't say that the other systems are impossible to use. I think you have to nest them within a widest <coughs> idea of what is the good society. The, compu- the, the computer needs to have a theory of human beings before you push the Android out of the door of the LSE to walk around campus. It must know what it thinks human beings are for and where they stand in a hierarchy of things which include flies and itself. Um, and 
That is the challenge. You know, the, the first line of any code, any moral and ethical code uh, embodied in a, an artificial intelligence would be for me, in order to make the human community into a good society and enhance well-being and make individual humans into virtuous people, execute the following steps. And since AI will benefit the whole, whole human race and could lay the basis for our collective transcendence of want, necessity, work, ignorance. The unit of community in question, unlike the communitarians, the right-wing communitarians in America, for me, communitarian, the community is the human race, indivisible. To be explicit, only a radical te teleological humanism can provide the arguments we need to, defe to defeat the enemy now and to deal with the challenge, the technological challenge, later. People... <clears throat> Always ask me what they should do. What should Corbyn do? What should Macron do? I think Corbyn might be about to walk out of the talks, by the way. Uh, John McDonnell gave a very, very strong hint just now at a, um, at a memorial meeting for the comedian Jeremy Hardy. He said, uh, quote, unquote, um, they're, having a fucking, they're having a fucking laugh, he said. <coughs> Strange words at the memorial meeting, but I think he was trying to signal something. Um, what people ask, what should Macron do? You know, which Democrat should take on Trump? The question I want to throw back in this book is, what should you do? <clears throat> of course, the answer is take political action, find each other and act. Unlike in the era of Arendt and Orwell, there is no Roosevelt and no Stalin and no Eisenhower uh, to save us. Covering the Occupy protesters in 2011, I always take away with me one of the things that one of them said to me. The guys who shone the 99% symbol onto the Verizon building during Occupy Wall Street. Ancient history now for the undergraduates here at, at uh, the LSE. This guy said to me, it looks like the bat signal, but what it means is uh, we are the superhero. There's, you know, Bruce Wayne was a psychopathic millionaire. Um, today, all the millionaire psychopaths are on the other side. Uh, the, the, the superhero is going to come and save us, is us, said this guy to me. And I, that has always stuck with me. Um, I argue, both in this book and all my other books, uh, that, that, that unlike Marx, I believe the new agent of history, the subject, is not the proletariat. It is human beings uh, struggling for self-empowerment and against everything that encroaches in on them. In that sense, my writing is in the tradition of the post-war humanist Marxist Eric Fromm, Rea Donievskaya, uh, C.L.R. James, that's who I have I've tried to rescue and develop their ideas in this book. Um, what do we do, need? We need a set of virtues. Um, just if you, if you read the Aristotelian virtues, you'll notice they're very different than the virtues of St. Francis of Sales or Foucault himself writing in the Anti-Oedipus in the 1970s. Aristotle's virtues were virtues for people with big pointy sticks and shields fighting other people. We're going to have to fight people, so we're going to need a set of virtues or reflexes that are combative, not the ones of living the non-fascist life. Don't be angry, don't be sad. The Foucauldian <laughs> virtues. Foucault did write a little um, half-serious virtue manual. Um, and I, I want to have an argument that we need a different set. To finish, of course Marx, who... I both celebrate and critique in this book, hated moral philosophy. He used to laugh out loud every time he heard the word moral. Um, what use does Nancy have in Oliver? What use does Fontaine in Les Miserables have with morality? Marx's generation of leftists had, used to ask when they are helpless sex slaves in an uncaring world. Or as Brecht put it in the Threepenny Opera, show us the sausage, we will show you the morals. 
we need food before you can engage us in a, in a question of morality. But the working class always ignored Marx. They always created their own moral philosophy. The journey Marx advocates for the 19th century working class from a class in itself to a class for itself is, I argue, a moral journey. It's the creation of virtue ethics from below by communities of working class people. Now, I, and of course it's transformative because Beatrice Webb, whose picture still sits up in the senior common room, I think, um, discovered when she went into London's East End as an undercover social researcher, she, she hated the morality of the D-classed, lumpenized, you know, utterly violent workers uh, that she found there. Child abuse, incest, domestic violence. But then she said, but the actions, the collective actions, transformed such people. And I think that is the moral experience of that forms Fabianism for me. I think we, the wider, the networked individuals, everybody who doesn't like the oppression and exploitation that we're subjected to, we have to take that journey, find each other and act, create a mode of, of, of living together um, and a mode of struggle. As to what to do politically, it's really, really very simple. I'm not going to dwell on it, and maybe your questions will, as they inevitably do, um, focus on it. Against the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob, I'm afraid there's going to have to be a temporary alliance of the left and the centre. And I say this as somebody who's identified as one of the, you know, such as they are, you know, figures uh, identified with the British left. The problems we face today aren't the same problems we faced in 2015. When the, it was the systems problem, the <coughs> European Central Bank, the IMF, the Troika, that was the problem. Today the problem is the far right. And we'll spend the rest of our lives, those of us, you know, I'm in 59, I'll spend the rest of my life fighting this. Uh, the climate change, of course, is the, is, the, is the urgent, important issue. And finding a different form of capitalism to replace this one is also urgent, important. Um, and to do that, we're going to have to find things on which the centre and the left agree on in a way that during the height of the Greek crisis seemed not so urgent. It seems very urgent for me now. Uh, there is no Georgi Dimitrov. This is not 1935. There is no Comintern to issue orders to everybody, drop your hostility to the Liberal Centre and form alliances with them, or to ask the question, would you rather be in a concentration camp or in government with Liberal ministers? That's what, that's what the Comintern said to its followers, but it's what I'm really saying to, to, to my colleagues on the left. The situation is urgent. We, we, we know how to defeat fascism. It can be defeated. But the wider and longer issues of what we want to put in place of this system can't be avoided because if we avoid, go on avoiding them, they won't. They have the utopia, and if you, it is already there. Just as, as much as the Occupy movement created an imaginary space in which a better world was possible online, they have created an imaginary space in which a horrible world is possible, and everything you see in your daily life is them, the right and their allies, trying to actualize that from the virtual to the analog. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We've got about uh, 25 minutes or so for questions and discussion. So I'll just um, start by taking individuals, but I think if we have a lot, we might start taking them in groups, if yeah. that's all right yeah. by you. So does someone um, want to indicate if they're interested in starting? Uh, so we've got a gentleman on the um, aisle there. 
Okay. Can you just wait till the microphone comes and before you start, just briefly say who you are and where you're from for our broader audience, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Paul, can you hear me? Yep. Great. Uh, great presentation. Raj Samos from, from Preventable Surprises. Um, on your closing comment about the need for a temporary alliance, it, it, at least in the UK, it seems even <laughs> uh, further away than it was before. Um, what would you say the, the progressive centrists need to do differently, the one, two, or three things? And what are the things that Labour need to do differently? And you didn't mention the Green Party. Okay, why don't you start with that? Okay, look, uh, very, very briefly on that. Um, I don't want to tie my book to a particular set of uh, political practices. In a way... I, as a, as a, as a loyal Gramscian, I believe I'm engaged in a battle for, to change the paradigm, to, to make certain ideas more hegemonic than they are. And so I, I don't, I obviously think, for me, as I define the left, it is the SNP, the Greens, Plaid Cymru, and Labour, and the wider progressive movement, the millions of people who are in uh, climate NGOs or anti-poverty NGOs. That's the social force, I think, that can, that can, form a, a basis of a common project here. That's the left bit. The centre bit is the Liberal centre. Liberal Party, the Liberal Tories, no, um, <clears throat> etc. Goldman Sachs. I said to uh, Jim O'Neill, ex-Goldman Sachs banker, you know, Jim, you know, if you want to fight fascism with me, then you know, it's, it can be Marxist Paul and, and Goldman Sachs Jim together. Uh, because, because that is really only what... Uh, Bloom's government in, in, in France was. It's only what the first Republican government in, in uh, Spain was. Uh, you know, there weren't many socialists in either of those governments, the two popular front governments of the 30s. I'm not calling for a popular front government. I, what I'm calling for is, is for us to... So people like me have to really overtly say this, and again and again and again, you know, the main enemy is the right, nationalism, and the breakup of the system. Why? Because you know, I, I move, as you know, on, in a lot of left circles. That is not ubiquitously accepted. Um, there are people who are very well known and, and very uh, well listened to who think the opposite, who think that the breakup of the global system is good and who think that the main enemy still is the neoliberal centre. Uh, and one unfortunate gentleman you know, uh, from the RMT union stood up a few weeks ago and said that people in Tommy Robinson's right-wing fascist movement are right to hate the liberal left. No, he didn't say the liberal centre, he said the liberal left. That means, what does that mean? Id Paul, as they call it, identity politics. I'm not going to wage war on that kind of leftism, because I don't think it... Just like E.P. Thompson... Uh, to, who, who, along with Miliband, is one of my humanist Marxist uh, idols, uh, Thompson said there's two Marxisms. There's a Marxism of humanity and human freedom, and there's Marxism of the gulag. And, and they're, just not, they're not commensurate. Uh, so for me, the, the important battle is not about parties, it's about ideology. But since you mentioned, what should the centre do? Well, you know, the centre has to decide some important things. Uh, is the main enemy the left? Okay, that's the, that's the first thing. You know, uh, to my knowledge, Sajid Javid has never called Robinson a fascist, but he did call Momentum fascists. Um, now, pretty soon, also, British conservatism, British centrism, rather, is going to go through a real crisis of, of, of uh, you know, a crisis of existence, because 
Um, what I described in the talk as the, the, the falling defenses of conservatism against far-right thinking, the creation of a shared mind space. In the book, there's a chapter called The Road to Kekistan. Kekistan is the, the, the conceit, this imaginary country that the far-right live in in America. Um, it's, that's the biggest thing. Now, the, the, I'm not so worried about the liberal centre in, in terms of the liberals. You know, look at the liberal party; has got good in, instincts now on Brexit, uh, etc. I do worry about liberal conservatism. Where is its philosophical basis when its, its, its mass base has gone right and when I think its ideological defences against ethno-nationalist thinking are weak? And especially in times of crisis, what makes me think that? Spain, look at what's happened in Spain. The, the Vox party, down on 10%, it got most of its uh, voters from Partido Popular, from the unreformed, post-Franco, conservative right. Uh, no, I, not from a working class, you know, not from a load of uh, ex-lefties. Uh, if you look, at, um, you look at what's happened in Austria, to you know, one of the most uh, well-rooted, socially-rooted uh, conservative parties in the world, the Austrian, Austrian uh, uh, People's Party. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it has leached members and influence to the to the Freedom Party uh, in a way that makes you, you that makes it. I, I think you know we could we could easily see the same thing going on with the with the Tories. If we don't uh, if we don't if they don't get their act together. With regard to the Greens, I, I applaud the British, the UK Greens, Scottish Greens, English and Welsh Greens. Etc. I applaud. No, I'm a Labour Party member, and, and I, you know, we live in a time where you say anything good about another party, you know, you're, the, the HQ are on to you. So I will simply say, I think that no, I think that their role is crucial now uh, in defining. Uh, we, we, we in Labour have a carbon constituency. We have tens of thousands of working class people who work in carbon industries, councils like Cumbria who are quite happy to open a new coal mine. Uh, we have our own fight to, to fight against the pro-fossil fuel lobby and the Greens are, come at it with none of that encumbrance. So I, I think see, I see them as an important part uh, and they're not, it's very, very clear as like today, they're not going away. 2017 was a, might be a blip. Um, and it makes it all the more important for people like me, who have identified as radical social democrats, to work harder to create that alliance between ourselves and the other progressive parties. Okay. Um, let me see. So we've got a, we've got a few people. Let, let me just start with um, this gentleman here at the front. Thanks very much, Paul. That was a brilliant exposition of the trouble we're in. It seems much deeper than one would first imagine. But can you see any role for music in our salvation? That's a, you know what? I, yeah, yes. Because, look, those of you who know my work know that I do have a utopia. I believe that information technology makes utopian socialism possible. I believe that uh, we, can ha we can manage a long uh, transition beyond the market, uh, beyond market uh, forces beyond the market society. Uh, I want it to be slow. I want it to be uh, multi-channel in, in the sense that I want m many different models to be tried out. But the important thing for me uh, about cultural production is that this is one of the underestimated uh, sources of the new economy. Um, you look at people say, "Well, you know, Paul, you've got Wikipedia, you've got open source software, you've got." Um, you know, you've got plenty of sort of organic farms, city farms, uh, 
in Germany. You've got the solidarity economy, as it's called in Germany. You've got 400 registered corps in Barcelona, 1,000 in Madrid. Fine. But I, I also say, you know, something deeper is, is going on. And you can see it in every theatre foyer. What, what do people who work in theatres do uh, when they're not working? They sit in the foyer of theatres and talk to other actors or musicians. That is, cultural production, be at the edges of and beyond the market, is for me one of the un, uh, underestimated transitional elements of the, of the economy I want to build. And of course it is the answer to what kind of, you know, Marx was a bit sort of quite quite hostile to animal life. You know, his view of what socialism was was hunting in the morning, fishing in the afternoon, uh, critical criticism in the evening. I think acting uh, or music or playing the lute might be a a better uh, thing. So I've come to see long-term cultural production is very important. Short-term, I think uh, cultural production is in a a crisis-ridden neoliberal system uh, when when the main threat is the right, is, is becoming very, very under threat. Not so much, again, music, although, although I went to La Scala for the first time ever in Milan two years ago, and I texted my opera uh, expert friends, why is it so shit? Uh, <laughs> and they said, uh, the leg That's why it's so shit, because the whole thing is politically controlled, and there is a demand for the old Verdian, Puccinian uh, production values. I mean, there was like a 90-year-old playing Simon Bocanegra. I mean, uh, his his hair had to be painted black. I mean, but this is old, decrepit hierarchical systems are now being, uh, you know, are being promoted by these guys. You, you'll see what Putin is doing in, with Russian nationalism in Russia. And, and of course, the, the, we, we, those of us involved in cultural production tend to treat these things as jokes, but they are as much of a joke as the Nazi epauletted people in Christopher Isherwood's cabaret are a joke. They're not a joke. You know, when the theatre in the park in New York put on, the, on Julius Caesar in modern dress, and Julius Caesar looks like Trump. They had thousands of letters, complaints, and even pressure on sponsors to pull out because you're putting this guy Shakespeare with his horrible attack on our president you know, on stage. Uh, the, the culture war is here, and we have to fight it. Do you want to take Collier in? Okay, uh, let me just check that I'm not missing anybody over this side. So um, we've got someone over here. So, guy in a beard. Uh, well, there's more than one person with a beard. Plenty of beard. Um, yeah, the, uh, the blue shirt. The gentleman, the, be- the gentleman with your hand up really high behind oh, okay. the guy. Go on. The, yeah. the beard yeah. and the glasses, I think, is the. Yeah, there. No, no, back, back a bit, back a bit. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, uh, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. I certainly empathize with your comments about the end of the Soviet Union. I, I saw that, although I didn't know it, of course, at the time in 1983 on board a Soviet warship. And I thought, this is one hell of a divided society. Almost exactly a year later to the day, I was at the Alamo in Texas, a garrison city, and I, was, I saw the same thing again, albeit obviously in a very different society. Whoosh. Where do you see the European Union in this? You, you thankfully haven't mentioned Brexit, but um, maybe in the bigger term of things, the European Union is 
as an institution is pretty irrelevant. It's stronger and deeper and wider forces. But where do you draw the line between trying to deal with uh, disruptive forces mm. versus mm. creating, basically fueling it by your reaction against it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've worked for the European Commission as a contractor. Frankly, I'm not sure they're up to it. They don't really face some of the big issues. Thank you. Well, th these are huge, huge questions. And there, there is a, a chapter on geopolitics in this book, which, um, you know, I want to just, I, I can't summarize in, in two seconds, but what I want to say about the European Union is, first of all, it's quite clear that um, Russia and America want to play a great power game. They, they, they have a mutual interest now in breaking up the multilateral global system. China not. China's trying to decide whether or not it, but certainly economic globalization, you're taking Xi Jinping at his word, is what they want. And they certainly don't want to be put back into a box by Trump, which is what he's currently trying to do. He's trying to enforce a new power structure on the world in which China reigns in the Belt and Road Initiative, etc. So that's where I think we are. In that context, and incidentally, uh, instantly hitting its uh, long-term prospects in the uh, People's Republic, there is a whole chapter in this book called Reject the Thoughts of Xi Jinping, uh, which is, which is a, an, an attempt to deal with Xi's Marxism. Because as a Marxist, I think Xi uh, has become you know, the most famous Marxist in the world, and I want to disagree with him. But um, Europe stands on that fault line now. Europe stands on the fault line of two powers that have been very interested in it want to break the global system up, and one power wants to nibble away at the edges for influence within the global system. Now, the first thing you want to do is you've, want to, you've got to want to be an entity in that game. You've got to want to be the fourth major player, and in, in some ways the biggest major player, or without an army but with a massive market. Um, my fear of the European Union, what made me initially think about whether it was possible to run a, a progressive and you know, leave campaign for a, for, a very, for a controlled step back to a Norway-type situation is that I'm just not very enamoured in, with the way in which, A, the bureaucracy uh, uh, operates, and B, the, 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 the missing bit of sovereignty between national sovereignty and, and trans-European sovereignty creates, it for me, a rules-free rules space in which uh, too many corporations get away with murder. Um, now, also literally... Also, another literal thing, having said the word murder, that, you know, Joe Arpaio in Arizona with his horrible jail in the horrible baking heat, um, to, you know, is a terrible example of capitalist America. But uh, Daphne Caruana's murder in Malta, the murder of journalists in Slovakia, the continued uh, terrible uh, effect of Viktor Orban's repression, of, of intellectual life in Hungary. Uh, if these were in America, people would attribute them to Trumpism. But, but because they're in Europe, they kind of, pro-European people tend to sort of think beyond them. Now, I think the real danger is that the European Union destroys Europe. Uh, for those Europe, Europeanists among us, you know, who want the values of the Enlightenment, of mutuality, universalism, the problem is the European Union doesn't end with the breakup. It ends a little bit up like the Tory government is ending up. It can't break up, so it has to stay in power and lose coherence. And my fear for the European Union is that. Um, there's a whole other debate we could have, have about how you re-engage the two, the two cylinders of the European engine, Germany and France, on a combined project. That's a real politic problem that I hope people at the LSE here are engaged with. But um, to me, uh, it is big, the practical choice now is staying in. 
the practical choice is the best deal we have is the one we have. Uh, it's still not great. Uh, I don't like it, but I like the others worse. And also, there's no way that the breakup leads to stability. The breakup will only lead to can only lead to political stability in Britain, i.e. Brexit can only bring political stability if hard Brexit, or i.e. no-deal Brexit, uh, finally assuages this 30% of the population that wants it. And as we know, that, that achievement will be the beginning for me of 10 more years of total uh, chaos. And we, Trump is a chaos merchant, so is Farage. So are the far right in Britain. What they want is somebody who can point the finger at when things go wrong. And my goodness, will WTO exit go wrong? It is a, a recipe for economic chaos and political uh, fra fractiousness. And it's no wonder that's what they want. So, but I, I don't want to spend all the time talking about my Brexit position because it is... It is um, I would like to persuade people to think about the ideas of the book, read some of the extracts of it, maybe even buy it, not on the basis that I have got a particular position on Brexit, but that I am trying to bring together two questions that mainstream thinking don't want to bring together, which is the horrible now and the terrifying future. Okay. Um, can I just urge everybody who wants to ask a question to ask a question? Um, yep, yeah, Anne, just, just wait for... Thanks. Uh, Anne Phillips, uh, LSE. Um, so I want to talk about the book. Um, I have a lot of sympathy with what your, your critique of post-humanism and your endorsement. I mean, I'm very happy to endorse the kind of humanism represented, say, by someone like Edward Said, mm. which I think is an important kind of force for uh, uh, thinking about a better world. But I, I really disagree with you about the idea of attaching that to a notion of human nature. Because what we know historically is that as soon as you try to give some content to your idea of human nature, it becomes profoundly exclusionary so that you have notions of what it is to be human in which turns out they're all men or you have notions of what it is to be human which coexist with justifying slavery, colonialism. Um, so that the kind of... I mean, here I'm much more with Hannah Arendt who also uh, was very distrustful of the idea of giving content to human nature. So I th I, my own view would be you can have uh, a lot of what you want to endorse as humanism without uh, committing yourself to a theory of human nature. I mean, I think, I think you can. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, another, way think, another term for the alliance between left and center would be exactly that, an alliance between people who want to um, defend... The, the, the danger is that we want to defend humanism. What we're up against is, <clears throat> for my sins, I've read a lot of the far right's ideology for, for, to write this book. Um, these rambling 5,000-word essay, essays by computer programmers. Uh, one is uh, Curtis Yarvin, uh, writes as Mencius Moldbug. And though maybe everybody over the age, or anybody who actually is at a serious university, maybe never even heard of him, but your kid on the Xbox has heard both him and the ideas. And what their enemy, their enemy is what they call the cathedral. The cathedral are the two objective sources of human knowledge. That is, mainstream media, verifiable knowledge, mainstream media and the university. And what they accuse us of doing is speaking ex cathedra, that is, without, without prior justification. Whereas their biological theories of their own supremacy, male supremacy, the, the systemic misogyny and all of this, uh, which I go through in the book, I think is the glue that holds all right-wing thinking together uh, in the last 50 years. Um, 
said it is a theory of biological supremacy. And what I wish to do here, I mean, simply because, for me, um, the... It's, you, I don't even want to call it, you don't need to call it a theory of human nature. You could just call, I call it in the book, a theory of human beings. Um, is, it, what do they tend to do? What, what does their DNA, uh, what kind of behavior does their uh, DNA produce? Marxism and this concept of species being, it, you, uh, what I want to do is admit honestly that it is a theory of human nature, which is what um, post-structuralist Marxists always didn't want it to do. Um, I think... I wouldn't just say uh, either uh, that it is that we have to venerate somebody like Said. Said. I would also say that Franz Fanon, in in his uh, attempts, what what Fanon said, he said all the things you said. Humanism has been the justification for slavery. There's not a there's not a bombing, you know. There's not a Bush, Blair, you know. Sarkozy, none of them would describe themselves as anything other than humanists. Uh, While they kill tens of thousands of people. But, um, but yeah, I, I think. But the um, the humanism uh, that I want to that I want to defend is the one that that that, that Fanon called for. That is, a, you know, a, a humanism of inclusivity of races, colours, creeds, sexes, genders. I think it was never achieved, and I totally understand the anti-humanist turn. Actually, the anti-humanist turn in the 50s, Arendt is one, Sartre is another, de Beauvoir is another. I can see that, because uh, I think Claude Lévi-Strauss says, you know, humanism led to the good, humanism led to to Auschwitz. Uh, But, but I, but as a Marxist, wanting to, to reclaim that thing which I want to reclaim from the systematized structuralist anti-humanist thinking of my other Marxists that I disagree with. My, I have to defend something, um, and it is, uh, you know, it is. I call it a biologically grounded theory, theory of universality. It's saying we're all engineers, we're all, uh, we're all uh, linguists, cooperators, uh, and I think that is the basis for for the pro- the, the project of uh, human liberation that I think Marxism is. So we'll just disagree, and we're not going to um, find the roots of our disagreement. Uh, but, uh, but it's interesting that... See, I think the argument between me and you, although I don't know you, and I might, I'm maybe presuming too much, is not an argument between a Marxist and a Nietzschean, but so much of the argument that I find... No, absolutely not. So, but so much of the argument in academia, above all in American academia, uh, is, is that... Uh, is that argument. Anyway, look, let's just carry on differing. <laughs> okay, look, um, let, let's just try and get a few shorter questions yeah, sorry, and perhaps shorter uh, yeah, answers do, as do, well, just yeah, to sorry. get a, a few people. Um, so can I, I just take three yeah, people let's do that. and if yeah. you take some notes. So um, the woman there with the glasses, um, first of all. Um, so uh, you're talking about a defense of the, uh, of the human being. So I wonder how much of this human being is an, uh, a biological human being to you. So in uh, other words, like you were talking about the um, apostle telos. So if, this, um, if, the tel- if there is a telos of men, does it have to be a biological man? And, uh, or in other words, what do you think makes human human? Okay, yeah. thank you. That was nice and succinct. Um, the woman about four from the back over there... Just wave your hand around with the jacket, yep. Oh, hello. 
Hello. Yes, I was thinking of um, uh, a film, I think it's called Annette or something, and mm. Sandra Bullock was in it, and it showed how it was very difficult for her to um, prove her identity because uh, her identity had got stolen. So um, it's becoming, um, you know, very difficult for... If we're not in the computer, I mean, just thinking along the lines of, you know, the Android technology, if we're not in the computer, it's almost like, you know, we don't exist and we have to prove who we are. And, you know, if we become undocumented, as some people are, then it's very hard for them to prove their identity. And if they're not able to do that you know, they can't get any of the other normal sort of services and things. So it shows how the computer is really taking over, you know, our own human humanness, if you like. And, um, you know, data can be used to sort of clone. Uh, I think that's already happening where people are being, their data is being cloned and things like that. So it is quite scary from that perspective, you know, how the computer is really taking over. Um, our identity, if you like. Okay, thanks. And just one last one quickly. Um, yep, so can we have a younger person down the front here, please? Hi, uh, just want to say thank uh, to Paul for talking to me before. Um, but also, I wanted to maybe if you look at it from a more uh, historical perspective, do you think one of the issues um, for convincing people of radical or utopian visions for the future? is the inherent hangover from the 20th century of all these utopian visions that failed, especially in Europe when we saw frequent utopian visions fail. Do you think that is inherently stopping people going towards visions for the future that present you know, universalism or, or yeah, utopian vision? All right, so we've got to be succinct. You can be a bit right, selective. Succinct. Okay, yeah. well, um, yes, obviously, um, those of us who grew up in the late 20th century know that there is an argument that utopia... You know, that, Utopian thinking leads to the Holocaust, to, uh, to, to the Gulag, to the Chinese famine, the Great Leap Forward, uh, to, to, to Hiroshima. Uh, yes, the one that always gets away is the, is the, is the massacre and, and genocide of, of, of uh, people in Latin America by Christians for their utopia. But let's include that one as well. Um, but let's, you know, yes, let's admit that that is a danger. But the same as getting on a bike and riding it, you're in danger of falling off it. Um, we now have a bigger problem. Without utopias, i.e. with the postmodernist sanction against utopias, uh, what you're left with is one no and many yeses, which is what you know, the anti-globalisation movement had. And I've just observed that that just is not working as a political strategy. One no and many yeses doesn't work. Um, I want not one yes, I, I want, you know, let's get a handful of yeses and try them out against each other, but let's be confident that they're transformatory. Um, on your question about um, biology and the telos, well, for me, look, uh, what, let's be absolutely clear. I don't have a normative human being. If there is, you say man, but I'd say human being. If there is a human being w w who is in some way slightly unusual and different, that doesn't, for me, exclude them from the teleological thought. But I do think that if we create uh, machines that are better than human beings, which we will, um, we, the, this, the, they, they may come, they may, if, they may uh, evolve their own teleological view of themselves. That is a high likelihood, I think. And therefore, we have to begin the discussion about what we will do at, at, that, at, that, at that point. Um, this is the way Olaf Stapledon, in, 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 his, uh, in, in his sci-fi novel, which I quote in the book, um, 
deals with this. Um, but the interesting thing is, to, it'll be a battle of two teleologies. Uh, it won't be a battle, uh, I hope it won't be a battle between a teleologically minded machine and, and a bunch of human beings who have ceased to believe that, that their species has a future or, or potential destiny or outcome or purpose, or each of, which, each of these things could be translated as, as telos. Um, towards the question of your, uh, your point you make, madam, is very, is very uh, well made. That right now, the, the, the technologies of social control are being deployed. Cambridge Analytica is one. The Chinese uh, Xinjiang uh, experiment is another one. But um, already they are cascading over into other societies. I think there's 18 examples of Chinese-developed technology uh, uh, being used in, say, Kenya, Pakistan, etc. Technologies of social control and surveillance. Um, the, the, we need to... You know, we need to realise that we will be. The Western societies are quite easy, easily and quickly capable of becoming clients for very, very uh, controlling technologies wherever they arise from. Some of them will arise from ourselves. But um, what's interesting is the cultural logic of neoliberalism produced a lot of films like the one you mentioned. I can't remember which one you're, you're talking about. I can see it in my mind's eye, um, where we're trapped in a simulacrum. That became like an almost kind of uh, Elevator pitch. Let's do a trapped in a simulacrum movie today, guys, in Hollywood. There's so many of them, you know, Matrix, Inception, uh, the, the Truman Show, etc. But um, right now, those t those seems to have kind of dissipated to be replaced by narratives without an ending. That's my that's the new late neoliberalism uh, has produced new, the one of which uh, you know ends next year next week uh, um, Game of Thrones. But there are so many of these HBO series where where our current cultural logic demands narratives that never end. They have a beginning and a middle plot development, but there's no what is missing. It's, it, there's no telos. There's no outcome to the story. And in the book, I make a call for us to refine ways of telling redemptive stories to each other. Uh, you know. Casablanca, you know, cynical guy, scarred by 10 years of, of economic crisis, decides to fight fascism. Um, that movie was, you know, written by a committee, not really by individual geniuses. I want us to take a societal decision that we need to try and find ways to tell each other those kind of stories and move away from, you know, the perpetually trapped black community of Baltimore in The Wire, the perpetually trapped Carrie Matheson in bipolar disease in Homeland, I'd like to see some resolution to some of these plot lines. And when we start to see that, I think we're starting to see the belief in, yeah, in utopias or in, a, in the outcome to human struggle, not simply the enmeshedness of humans helplessly within struggles. Okay. Well, um, I think we've more or less run out of time. I think we've heard, a, in, way, in some ways, an excoriating critique of a series of contemporary developments but it was one that rejected fatalism, both the fatalism of neoliberalism but also the fatalism of a certain kind of academic leftism. And in its stead, I think what you offered was an account, an optimistic account in a way, one which in, in your telling was rooted in humanist Marxism, but which could, I suppose, be said to be rooted in something much more broadly common in the leftist tradition, a belief in the human capacity to act collectively to improve human societies. If you're interested in these ideas and following them up, the book is available outside and Paul will be available out there to um, sign them. 
But before you go, can I ask you to join me again in thanking our speaker, Paul Mason? Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs>